coming up this week on Breaking Badness. Today we discuss all things SolarWinds, including a timeline of events, additional infrastructure observations, victim identification, attribution, and building your defense. And of course, we'll end with our fun game, Two Truths and a Lie. With that, Breaking Badness is next. Welcome to Breaking Badness, episode number 70, recorded on December 21st, 2020. I'm just going to pause for a second before I introduce our co-host and say, I'm so glad that's the last time you'll hear 2020 as I'm introducing the date of this podcast. I just want to take a moment for that. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I was going to say, I I don't know if you meant you were going to not leave that in the recording, but <laughs> the recording. well, I, yeah, I was going to say everybody wants uh, hindsight to be 2020, but I want 2020 hey. to be hindsight. <laughs> there you go. Very well said. Um, not that I don't know if anybody saw the SNL skit with uh, Maya Rudolph and um, oh my gosh, Kate McKinnon and um, oh my gosh, how am I Another forgetting? Person another person um, that came back and was a special guest and they were joking about that. Uh, Kristen Wake, Kristen Wake was saying to her manager, like you told me that this would just, the clock turns 2021. This is all over, right? That's how this works. Um, so I guess it's, we'll still have some pain coming our way, but anyway, it feels good to be done saying that. Um, <laughs> but anyway, I'm your co-host, Kelsey. You win some, you lose some. Well, um, we also have Tim Hate to sunburst your bubble, Helming. <laughs> and of course, last but not least, for the first time on Breaking Badness, always rushing to conclusions, we got Matt Paul. So thank you, Matt, for joining us today. And Tim, too. I guess I guess I'll thank you as well. Well, okay. I mean, you can reserve your thanks until the end and see if I provide anything useful. <laughs> I'll take the thanks now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think... You know, it's not going to surprise most people. You know, typically we focus on two different current events that are happening from the week, but we're gonna we're gonna focus on uh, one this week. I don't think it'll surprise you what we're talking about. So, of course, there's been a recent incident that's been on the top of a lot of our minds and probably has sucked up a lot of uh, folks' time as they're trying to remediate and understand the impact on their organization. Um, which is, of course, what's happening with solar winds. So we have the recent incident leaves organizations to twist in the solar winds. So multiple entities have disclosed. And even since, you know, we've written the outline for this podcast, I'm sure even more have disclosed a supply chain attack via solar winds Orion network monitoring software on, um, I believe this happened on December 13th of 2020. So Domain Tools has provided an initial analysis of network infrastructure and implications on the 14th of December. But since then, again, multiple entities have released reports, including additional malware analysis, C2 identification, and details on the possible scope of the incident. So that's what we're really going to be honing in on today. And Tim, it feels sort of like the solar winds news is a big red yarn ball and we're all kind of like a cat and it's just like every time anybody pulls a little bit of that yarn um just more and more and more unravels it's like truly snowballing and so i'd like to back up to like a few days ago it's not been that long and ask how this story broke and what were some of the first takeaways feels like it was forever ago doesn't it and uh, you're so right uh this 
particular yarn ball is very far from being fully unraveled. So here's how we first came to know about this. As you said, uh, the news broke about this incursion as we currently understand it on December 13th. Um, and I'm using it that way as we currently understand it, because now we know what we didn't know at first, which is the FireEye breach had been, which had been disclosed earlier was in fact related uh, to Sunburst as well. So the first real takeaways about this breach were that it was a big deal. And for those of you in podcast land, that is a capital B, capital D, big deal. At the very beginning of the solar winds part of the story on the 13th, we knew that several government agencies, including the Commerce and Treasury Departments, had been breached. But it only took a few hours before it was broadly known that many more agencies were involved, including the Pentagon, all branches of the U.S. military, the State Department, the NSA, and more that I just don't even have time to list here. Um, in fact, there seemed to be only a couple of agencies that were not breached as far as we know. I don't recall at this moment what those were, but it was just a couple, maybe Education Department. Um, and that's just the U.S. government. Many, many more entities were involved. At just for some sound bites here, at least 425 of the Fortune 500 all of the top 10 U.S. telecom companies, all of the top five accounting firms, the Los Alamos National Lab, other national labs, hundreds of universities and colleges, uh, scores of local and state government agencies. Shall I go on? I think I won't, actually. It's too depressing. But in fact, <laughs> you know, if there was any sort of silver lining uh, here, and trust me, this is not much, but it's that there is so much data available to the adversary that they could basically be drowning in it. But we can't take any comfort in that. I mean, it stands to reason that any entity that's capable of pulling off a breach of this magnitude is also pretty capable of figuring out where the really sensitive stuff is. The holiday part of my brain right now is like, and do you recall the most famous breach of them all? That's, that's oh. like what's going through my head as you're talking right that's now. Let's hope this is the most famous breach of them all, because if there's anything worse than this one, I really don't want to imagine that. Yeah, son of a breach. I hope so. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, how has this incident since evolved? Can you hit on some of the more major, major highlights? Because like you said, this is this is never ending. Yeah, getting your mind around this is a little hard, but I would say there are kind of two major ways that it's evolved. So the first is the scope of it. And I... Think back to those who've seen Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope, the very first Star Wars movie, uh, at the very beginning of the movie where we see the rebel ship being pursued by the Star Destroyer. And what makes that moment so impressive is how the Destroyer just keeps growing and growing and growing. Like you're watching it and you're having these mini moments of thinking, oh, it's that big. No, it's that big. Holy smokes, it's that big. And does this thing never end? And that's the way, the first way that this story has evolved. And the, the second is that, as you expect, with a disclosure like this one, we're getting a more focused picture of how the intrusion began. Um, that is details of that backdoor that was delivered by SolarWinds Orion, and then some of the other later stage tooling and activities um, tied to Sunburst. I love the Star Wars reference. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also they laughing were really to myself. smart to shape that ship like a wedge because that that made that effect happen, and it was just. And I think that's on purpose. And it was just like I remember being blown away by that moment. Unintended. Oh gosh. 
It was recently um, at, at my parents' house going through old things, and um, I came across quite a few drawings. I must have been quite the Star Wars fan at a young age. And my teacher would, like, put Post-it notes in there. And it's this one says the Death Star exploded again, which I think is just a hilarious thing for a teacher to leave a post-it note <laughs> in like your drawings that you turn in to be like, this has happened quite frequently and I'm going to call this out via post-it note. That's awesome. <laughs> but did you make flip books of it? Oh, man, that would have been smart. That's probably what she was getting at. So one question I had for you, Matt, is when was sunburst activity identified and does the community have any sense as to when preparation for this attack began? That's, you know, one of the $64,000 questions. Uh, FireEye, you know, where they were the first entity to sound the alarm on this campaign about 10 days ago. You know, and we can kind of assume that this was discovered, you know, based upon the telemetry that they got or they had within their own breach. And uh, then, you know, you could probably think they turned right around and said, oh, you know, if this happened to us, uh, which of our customers did this happen to? You know, let's, let's look for it. Um, after they saw that telemetry, there was a bit of code analysis. Um, and, you know, they were able to analyze a software package that was beaconing. And then, you know, they realized, oh, it's solar winds that's doing this. Uh, we don't know the duration of fire, fire eyes analysis prior to the announcement, uh, meaning like how long were they sitting on the analysis? Presumably, they wanted to ensure that whatever they put out is airtight. Um, being former NSA myself, what's more of interest to me is that the the NSA aspect of things. So NSA is the primary agency charged with protecting U.S. government cyber assets. And the fact that this was not publicly released by NSA in advance is potentially a strong indicator that they did not know about this, which implies uh, that government agencies were fully affected. Uh, We know that the primary command and control domain was first enabled in February 2020. However, the properties for the domain were modified in December 2019. So the domain itself is much older and most likely originally registered by a party that is not affiliated with the attackers. Uh, If we look at the timeline, we can infer that the planning for the campaign probably occurred no later than Q1 of 2019. So we can kind of think that planning occurred in two parallel verticals. They've got one group modifying the code base, and then you've got another effort, which is uh, selecting and preparing the infrastructure. And, you know, this probably was an operation with uh, many moving parts. Very well summarized, Matt. And I was just reflecting this morning, actually, on, you know, FireEye was just taking hits left and right when they were the first ones to disclose this. But boy, have things changed and just even looking at their stock, um, since a few days or a day after and then once people realized these things were connected and the the dominoes started to fall um just really appreciative of their integrity and their transparency there because it seems to have been critical information to share publicly so matt um i also wanted to ask you know it's there's been so much analysis on this entire incident, some helpful, some not, but um, one that comes to mind that is helpful was some analysis conducted by reversing labs. So what did they discover and maybe what are some details that are useful that they uncovered and what conclusions maybe could we have drawn from, from that additional information? That's a good question. The reversing labs report was very informative and it, it really added a lot of context to this attack and the campaign. So you know, in reading what they had, what they put out, we were able to kind of see that um, the first instance of tampered software was uh, related to a release that was dated as early as October 2019. 
And what's very interesting about this version is that it did not contain a full backdoor. But what it did do is it instantiated some classes, some code classes that would be used later on as part of the weaponized release. And the release date of the weaponized release was March 2020. So, you know, we're, we're talking about six months. And so it's not known whether the release, you know, the the um, instantiated class release or the non-weaponized release was a trial run, maybe to test the waters. Um, but obviously, very, with a methodical approach, that would be something you know, very intelligent by the attackers to do. A couple other things about the code that uh, Reversing Labs found is they found that the code was very well written. So the attackers astutely wrote the code to mimic the style and syntax of SolarWinds developers. Um, you know, the SolarWinds developers that worked on the code base um, in an effort to remain undiscovered. Um, much of the code itself runs in memory and makes attempts to remove traces of itself in relevant logs. So it's a very comprehensive piece of kit. Um, if you put all this together, the reversing labs report, the excellent work by FireEye, it just goes to show us that the whole campaign has kind of been a slow and methodical approach. Um basically leading to a ramp up with a strong focus on OPSEC. And this is potentially the type of OPSEC we would expect to see by a group of centrally managed professionals. This makes me want to start a company with like <laughs> for larger breaches and attacks like this, like timeline puzzles. So you're like piecing together what happened. Sure. And we, I'm sure we don't know the, you know, the extent of the timeline, of course, we'll learn a lot more about that. Yeah, I was listening to a podcast. I'm trying to remember what it was or reading an article. I can't remember where this came from, but they were talking about how they expect a lot of this information will come out from media more so than potentially all organizations or government entities just based on limitations that exist and what can be shared. And so they were talking about that in the context of Stuxnet and... There was another great example that they had where all of, all of that information and maybe a better sense and larger vision of the impact were communicated through from the press perspective, which is fascinating. No surprise there. Yeah. Well, Tim, some additional analysis was also performed by Velexity, if I'm saying that correctly. Are there any conclusions you'd like to highlight from their reporting? Sure. Yeah, this was also some really good reporting. Uh, they identified a group responsible for some of the specific breaches that used this uh, supply chain attack as Dark Halo. Um, that's a group that's called UNC 2452 by FireEye. UNC stands for uncategorized. And they've been active for years now, uh, including three major incidents that Alexity worked. So to explain this a little bit, they did some response work for a think tank, a U.S. think tank in late 2019 and early 2020. It was infected with, as they put it, multiple tools, backdoors, and malware implants. Alexity was able to initially kick them out of the network. But uh, as we're seeing here, these are actors who truly embody the idea of an advanced persistent threat. Um, a lot of people sort of dunk on that term um, as not meaning much, but in this case, they absolutely are all three of those words, advanced, persistent, and threat. And they were able to get back into the think tanks networks by exploiting vulnerability in uh, the Microsoft Exchange control panel. Um, one of their main goals seemed to be getting at the emails of senior personnel at the think tank. And to that end, they did things like using novel techniques to bypass uh, duosex two-factor authentication um, to get at one of their targeted individuals, OWA or Outlook Web Access account. And 
I'm just going to pause here and make a 2021 prediction, even though that's not the theme of this podcast. Uh, books are going to be written about this activity in 21. I, I don't even know what to call it. You know, activity, breach, intrusion, um, as an aside, lots and lots of chatter in the InfoSec community about whether we should call it an attack, whether we should call it espionage, et cetera. The, whatever the it is uh, of this event, it's evolving and growing so much. Um, and the books that are going to be written about this aren't just going to be the sandworm uh, types of books. Uh, these are going to be textbooks. I mean, the operations of Dark Halo are literally textbook examples of how an advanced actor works. They lived off the land for, uh, according to Vilexi, years at the breached uh, think tank. They used advanced exploits and tools only when they had to. Most of the time, they were just quietly operating uh, on the victim networks like any other authorized user. Um, and to go back to that abuse of Duo's two-factor auth, it's interesting, um, and it carries a lesson here for blue teamers because Dark Halo did not actually exploit a vulnerability in Duo. Instead, they were able to bypass Duo entirely by including a cookie in the session that had been derived via Duo's integration secret key. If they hadn't been able to get that key, they wouldn't have been able to bypass the two-factor auth, at least not in that particular way. So. One of the takeaways that Velexity emphasizes about this is the importance of changing all passwords and keys after an intrusion and not just changing them to something that would be guessable by the attacker. Like even if you have a strong password, but then when you change it, you use the same strong password and a different digit at the end, you have to assume that um, even when it appears that somebody's been eradicated from your network by your IR you know, functions and your remediation, you have to assume they might not be. So if they know your password pattern, even if you're using strong passwords, your next password is just a sequence of that pattern. Guess what? They're back in. So, you know, there's going to be a lot of discussion of best practices and so forth um, uh, after this, when the dust settles, even if the dust ever does settle. Yeah. I hope the book is titled A Novel About Novel Attacks. (laughs) There's got to be something there. Very meta. (laughs) (laughs) novel inception um well one of the main you know potential victims if to your point tim about what the right terminology is seems sort of difficult to get my wrap my arms around i'll say but of course microsoft has popped up quite a bit in the conversation so uh, what what are the implications or consequences if microsoft was included in this list of vendors that was attacked cyber espionaged whatever, whatever might be. Yeah. So this seems, and I do want to emphasize seems since we're learning more like practically by the hour, it seems not to have been the case that Microsoft isn't denying that there was an incursion, but what they're saying is that it only involved some servers that were isolated from customers of services such as uh, Office 365. If in fact it comes to light that customer services were involved, then the implications are staggering. I mean, think of the millions of businesses, agencies, and just individuals who have sensitive data that's residing in Office 365. But again, I want to stress that right now, we don't have any evidence that O365 has been compromised. Uh, Reuters had a story initially um, uh, indicating that, and they have since walked that story back. Um, so it, it's it's not looking right now like Microsoft itself was a vector of this incursion. but. Uh, and we'll hope that turns out to remain true. 
well said, Tim. And, um, you know, more information is probably going to come out between when we publish or publish the podcast and when we've recorded it. So some things may be debunked that we're even talking about or we, you know, might have new information. So just want to put that disclaimer out there. Um, But I want to take a hard pivot here to some of the actual infrastructure that's been identified. And so, Matt, I know uh, Joe Slowick on your team has done some digging in Iris. I'm positive you have too. And he came across some C2 nodes. So can you describe what Joe found there? So Joe Slowick has been an absolute researching powerhouse on our team. He was able to do a lot of research around the command and control domain, the and the primary command and control and control domain was used. And it was initially registered in 2018, probably by parties that were not related to this campaign, this attack. Um, the details around the domain ownership changed sometime in 2019. In fact, it's December of 2019. And uh, Joe was able to show that the modifications with that and some of the other secondary domains matched a late 2019 timeline. And so what's important about that is that we know that the reversing labs code was analyzed uh, and that showed that the initial code modifications took place around October 2019. So if we have code modifications in October 2019 and domain modifications for command and control in December 2019, you can see that they may maybe waited around 60 days to ensure that that code release, that SolarWinds code release, uh, the initial inert one wasn't going to be detected. So if we look at everything holistically, we can see these two things going on in parallel, the modification of the code and uh, setting up the infrastructure for command and control, and it matches this timeline. Um, regarding the 10 other secondary domains, the command and control domains, these were, Joe found that they they used innocuous naming conventions to appear as basically normal uh, C2 traffic from the infected solar wind servers with that traffic going back out to these domains. And the attackers or the you know, if you want to name them the hackers, they they were very intelligent in the domains that they selected. They were generally technology related. They'd been around a long time and they did not trip any alarms, so to speak. Um, getting back to Microsoft, one interesting note about Microsoft, uh, and especially regarding the primary command and control domain, um, I was really impressed by the speed and breadth of Microsoft's seizure efforts in taking control of that domain. They sinkholed it and... Um, this is going to really help defenders by allowing Microsoft to warn companies as they detect infected instances of solar winds that are trying to, quote unquote, phone home. So this effectively creates a kill switch. It's going to neuter the ability of infected solar winds packages um, from calling back to the mothership using that domain as a, as a command and control. That might be the first time I've heard the word neuter used. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm good with it. I think it is a proportionate description of the effectiveness. <laughs> That's good. So I have a, I, I'm just going to throw in a slightly contrarian uh, point on one of these, uh, on one aspect of this, and I could be wrong, um, but it has to do with when that domain, uh, that initial C2 domain changed ownership, because one of the things that I noticed about that is that the expiration date uh, of the domain was much later than when it when the ownership details changed. So the way that would happen is if it was a transfer rather than a domain that dropped. So the it's interesting to think about like did the did the entity like approach somebody else and say, hey, I want to buy this domain off of you. Uh, my guess is that maybe it's the same group. They just changed their 
all their their information there um, or sort of transferred it to themselves, so to speak, um, as another effort to cover their tracks. That's totally speculative on my part, but I just found it interesting that the change in the who is records there did not coincide with the expiration date of the domain. I think that's hugely insightful, actually. That's extremely insightful. I think that's just like we were you were talking about before, Tim. Um, this whole thing is a big ball of yarn, red yarn. Uh, that's definitely a thread that's going to need to be pulled out. And hopefully maybe some, some listener hearing this podcast will go do it. And and by the way, as um, people would probably surmise, there's nothing in that who is data that's going to point to, you know, Guess what? The SVR did not uh, put their street address on the who is <laughs> like there's nothing useful in it. It just went from one uninteresting, uh, unhelpful set of ownership information to a different unhelpful, uninteresting set of ownership information. Understood. Did you say they were not Putin their address on the record? I Hey-o. certainly should have said that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad to have you on the podcast, Matt. <laughs> well, I'm curious too, you know, both you and Tim, uh, Tim, appreciate that additional context there. That's interesting. But um, just digging into your response there a bit more about um, the information that was pulled here, Matt, what did those findings then reveal about this campaign? You already really touched on how carefully they chose and selected those domains but is there anything else to take away from this this information yeah i think uh there's really a couple key points here among many and and joe's articles that he wrote about this they were really informative um you know as i kind of mentioned the modifications show us that the attacker domains were selected carefully um they had a goal of using domains that had already been established in an effort to avoid raising suspicion uh, for example, many threat intelligence platforms will factor newness into a security rating. So older, uninteresting domains are less likely to raise alarms, for example, in a SIM. Um, and also domain hosting was primarily via cloud service providers. And, and that kind of provides a way for an attacker to easily set up and tear down or move infrastructure. So, you know, you can have some level of uh, nimbleness there as well as uh, plausible deniability instead of using dedicated infrastructure. So, um, Joe did a very good job of highlighting kind of the TTPs of what these attackers were doing. Well, said. thank you for summarizing that, Matt. And so uh, another thing I want to talk about here, another aspect of this supply chain attack is the ability to decode lists of victims after um, Pervasio, if I'm saying that right, published this algorithm publicly. So, Tim, what can you tell our audience about about this shenanigans? Sure, yeah. Uh, to me, this was uh, one of the more interesting tidbits of this from a forensic point of view. So uh, most listeners to the podcast will be familiar with the concept that DNS can be abused for various kinds of malicious activities far beyond just resolving domains that are used by adversaries. So in this case, part of the C2 for Sunburst involves DNS queries where the subdomain part of the query string is this encoded blob that represents the name of the victim entity that the query is coming from. Uh, It just looks like gibberish when you see it on the wire, but it turns out to be a pretty basic substitution cipher. Like you could literally, once you know uh, how this works, you could decode it with one of those paper decoder rings that you can make, Um, you know, shift four characters to the right and suddenly it all makes sense. And 
this tells the threat actor who the query is coming from, uh, evidently uh, to help them prioritize their targeting. So looking for these random seeming subdomain strings is one of the ways that an organization can use DNS logging to figure out if they've been compromised with this malware. Wow. I'm going to start putting uh, these in serial boxes for defenders. That's right. Yeah. Those decoder <laughs> rings are, well, this is one of the few times that like you're going to see such a basic substitution cipher. It, it shows that I think mainly they were just trying to kind of cover their tracks a little bit. It wasn't that they were trying to deeply encrypt that data. Yeah. Was that an oblique reference to spy like us and Drogan's decoder ring? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> there used to be a lot of those uh, around. And I, I remember literally making one out of paper where you could just slide the two sets of characters around on it so that you could get your, your substitutions. Be sure to drink your Ovaltine. That's right. Good stuff, Maynard. <laughs> well matt again switching gears here a little bit there's just so much to talk about with this insert descriptor here um i'm curious to hear what does the sunburst infection chain look like yeah so uh again uh referring to my colleague joe slowick uh, he did a pretty good he made a pretty good um um flow chart showing how this, you know, what this looks like. So basically the malicious update is downloaded via SolarWinds through the SolarWinds updater. Uh, a check by the malware is performed to make sure that the host's IP address is not a private address or uh, or an address in defined in a narrow public, public range. And so once those checks pass, an outbound call is made to the primary C2 server. And then a CNAME response is returned by the C2 server using a a domain-generated algorithm derived by using the host name of the infected host. Basically, you have the infected host reaching out to the C2 server. It provides as part of the details its host name, and then the C2 server uses the host name to come up with this scrambled um, C name back, as Tim was talking about. And then from there, the attacker can decide whether to further prosecute the target, um, whereby it's possible that Command and control will occur via either the primary C2 server or one of the secondary C2 servers, or the attacker may simply choose not to further prosecute the attack, you know, if it's not in their interest. Uh, another thing I want to mention was, and this was as Tim pointed out, this attack cast an extremely wide net. So multiple industry and government verticals were affected. So the attackers obviously knew the types of target sets that were of greatest interest to them. So in this particular attack type, uh, the nature of the infect and the nature of the infection chain, as I just talked about, it allowed them to keep the fish that they wanted and basically throw back the ones that they didn't. Hey, hey, Matt, mm-hmm. what is a threat actor that cares about their OPSEC's favorite <laughs> breakfast? Lay it on me. I don't know. Scramble. <laughs> nice. That's a good one. I, I thought they liked hash. Oh, there you go. That's even. Touche. Wow. Plus two. Wow. On that, one. that was so good. When it comes to puns, you got to break a few eggs to make an omelet. You got that right. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. I hope Chad listens to this and is just cringing at all the puns. That's my favorite thing to do to him during this podcast. So he's out of it during the live. So I can't see his face on on Discord, but he has to live with it all the same. Um, Well, Matt, the million dollar question or $64,000 question, um, which I don't think accounts for inflation. I think at this point, we've got to, we've got to raise that number. Um, <laughs> 64,000 Bitcoin question, probably. <laughs> there you go. 
Oh my gosh. The big money question here, we'll say, is just when we see these massive incidents, we, we want to know who did this. So what do we know thus far in regards to attribution? Everyone's favorite, favorite term in InfoSec. So, you know, I'm, I'm always rushing to, uh, you know, conclusions, right? But <laughs> so every, I wasn't alone. So everybody else rushed, you know, there was an initial rush by some media outlets to attribute this attack to APT29, Cozy Bear, or, you know, Russia's Foreign Intelligence Service, the SVR. And uh, many U.S. government entities also blame APT29 for the attack. But I think basically, as Joe kind of pointed out in his his blog article, they're, they're really using these, you know, these attributions they're really using apt 29 as a catch-all for russian government sponsored entity so it's it's worth it's worth noting that fireeye velexity and microsoft they're all attributing the attack to unknown entities and they're kind of refraining from making such a strong conclusion but the general consensus seems to be that it is russian and obviously i can tell you i know that the fbi is working very diligently to determine true attribution you know who really did this and so that that investigation work is going to include investigating the TTPs. And that will also, something, and a lot of people don't talk about this, it's also going to include an investigation of at least SolarWinds personnel, and especially those who are in positions of modifying the code base, because it's all speculation, but I can guarantee the FBI is certainly not ruling out uh, insider compromise as the initial. So they're looking at this from every angle to find out who actually did it, but probably the Russians. Nothing like a game of whodunit around the holidays. <laughs> well, my final question for you two before we get into our game, Two Truths and a Lie, is what can organizations do to limit the risk that they'll be victimized, let's say, or face the consequences of this attack or do their best to remediate it? So, Matt, I'm going to start with you. What are your thoughts? So I was a vulnerability manager for four years for a large organization. And, um, you know, I would have said, like, like any vulnerability manager, patch, patch, patch. Why aren't we patched? But as it turns out, you know, that, was, that would have been the absolute wrong thing to do. I'm still looking <laughs> patching. Um, you know, a little side note, I have a buddy uh, who works at a different company and he's a network security engineer. And I, I asked him, I said, hey, you know, did you guys download this patch? He goes, no, dude, we weren't even affected at all. I said, well, why not? He goes, yeah, we haven't patched SolarWinds for two years, so we're good. I'm like, okay, man. <laughs> probably not what your full manager wants to hear, but... Uh, it's kind of, uh, you know, perverse in a way if you think about it. But, you know, those organizations like my buddies, if, if they avoided, you know, patching, you know, they avoided introducing the backdoor into their environments. But that's this is just a one off. It's it's not a normal circumstance. So that said, um, the best thing to do is have a defense in depth approach. And that's almost always the best strategy. So, you know, this means you're going to have proper controls of the firewall, including SSL inspection, Internal segmentation between tests, QA, production, card data environments, and admin environments, endpoint protection, including file integrity monitoring, DLP, data loss prevention. Um, so, and then, you know, finally, this is a shout out to a bunch of friends. You, you want a robust threat hunting team if you can afford it. You know, not every organization can afford, afford that. But I think one, a big one, and I saw this kind of in another organization is uh, if you can disable these scripting languages on hosts, if they're not needed, uh, you don't necessarily need to uh, enable PowerShell on every single host, hopefully. But I think most importantly, out of all of this, especially for carrying out defense in depth is 
the selection and implementation of a good security framework like CIS 20 or the ISO 27001, 27002, because they're going to holistically bring all of these controls together to, you know, help an organization uh, create an environment that has uh, good defense in depth. And that's really the way you, you try to, if you can't keep the, the attacks out, to bring them to a successful resolution very quickly. Very well said. Really appreciate your insight there, Matt. And I'm curious, Tim, if you have anything to add. Sure. Um, so, yeah, the essentials of your security blocking and tackling just always, always apply. Um, I'm going to depart from the letter of your question, Kelsey, just a little bit before coming back to it. Uh, in order to address uh, some of the incident response practices that Velexity emphasized, guess what their first recommendation was? It was look for traffic to the malicious domains and IPs used by Sunburst. Real basic, right? But still fundamentally important. This thing is so ex uh, extensive that the first order of business is to figure out if you've been affected, especially if you're a solar winds shop who did patch. Um, the forensics on this intrusion, parts of them anyway, they underscore how valuable DNS is to figuring out what's going on with a known or a suspected a breach. And so now as for guarding against future incursions or attacks that are like this one, first of all, I 100% agree with everything that Matt said. I mean, like every single major area of InfoSec best practices is involved here, um, you know, from least privilege, zero trust stuff to good password and key management to uh, carefully developed network traffic monitoring. As it happens, I was on a panel about threat hunting with SANS last week. Uh, they just uh, released their annual threat hunting survey results. And one of the kind of provocative questions on the panel was, could the SolarWinds breach have been prevented by, detected or prevented by threat hunting? And there was some variation in opinions on that. Like some of the panelists said no, uh, but I said yes. And my reasoning is not to throw any victim under the bus here. Um, because the spirit of my answer was more theoretical than actually practical, but it morphs into being practical. What I mean by all that is that we are going to develop new ways to hunt uh, based on what we're learning about Sunburst. And those methods may allow us to detect similar kinds of incursions earlier uh, when they happen in the future. So having said that, in this case, um, if you had some regex in place that alerted on weird DNS traffic, uh, like those easily encrypted um, victim subdomain uh, strings, that's a pretty attainable goal. And if you were doing that, you might have flagged some of the early stage C2 where the actor was identifying victims. And if I sound like a broken record here, call it a broken A record or a broken C name record, since DNS <laughs> offers so many avenues, uh, both to the attacker and the defender. Well punned, Tim. And good points. More importantly, good points, but also very well punned. We're just, you know, we're all united in the effort to drive Chad up the wall. Because <laughs> he's at the beach and we're not. If I hear those damn birds chirping again, I swear to God, I'll do more puns. I'll do it. Just to spite him. <laughs> he's not afraid to use some people. <laughs> <laughs> he's actually in the basement. He has bird noises playing just as a reminder. So you I need to be so. reminded. <laughs> I'm kidding. Chad, we love you. We love you, Chad. If you take anything away from this episode, it's that we love you. Um, 
Well, let's let's do our hoodie rating here, which is a quick reminder to our audience is from zero to ten and is a playoff the cliche of hackers and hoodies. So ten is very, very bad. So I just suspecting that we'll be on the higher end of the spectrum from both you. But uh, Matt, I'm going to start with you and ask what your hoodie rating is for this one. Uh, this is 10 out of 10. Uh, this is going to be this is the gift that keeps on giving. This is like the snuggly or snuggy of, of hoodies. And this is this is yeah, this is the 10 out of 10. No problem. No questions asked. Very well said. 10 snuggies. Tim? There it is. Absolutely. I mean, my serious answer is that it is 100% 10 out of 10. My less serious answer is this one goes to 11. Um, but yeah, this is this is as bad as it gets. Uh, I hope we never see something worse than this one, like I mentioned earlier. But, um, you know, unfortunately, a lot of folks have had a lot of sleepless nights um, since this was discovered. And that's not going to change anytime soon. And I really feel for folks in the InfoSec community that are struggling with this. Um, be really, really nice to your InfoSec friends. They're having a rough time right now. Um, and, uh, you know, I have seen a lot of a lot of support and shout outs and whatnot in InfoSec Twitter and other other places. Um, so there's a lot of rallying and support in the community, but 10 out of 10, no question about it. Yeah, thanks for the reminder to be to be thankful for all these folks, these defenders. I know so many people have gotten very little sleep and have been extremely stressed. So thank you for your hard work and your efforts and your dedication. Um, I, before we finalize our last episode of 2020, because again, we will not be back actually until I believe the second week of January, we're going to take a, a quick breather here before we're back to our weekly cadence. Um, so feel free to listen through old episodes. If you miss us, I know many of you will. Um, but let's, let's play two truths and a lie. And this is Matt's first go. So no pressure, Matt. Um, you're playing for Chad. You're playing for his marbles here. Uh, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to read three article titles and much like the game, two truths and a lie, two of them will be true. One will be a lie. And <laughs> Matt and Tim are going to try to sniff out my deception. So are you two ready for me to, to read my articles for the week? Let them and death do it. <laughs> Trying to decide if I should turn my video off. <sighs> I'm worried Matt's <laughs> going to be able to view my I visual fa face. Yeah, my poker face. Okay, here we go. Hewlett Packard Enterprise discloses zero day, which includes a remote code execution vulnerability. That's number one. Number two, Molerat's cyber espionage group, new and improved malware abuses TikTok services. That's number two. Number three, ransomware gangs take advantage of automation to deliver payloads with system BC malware. Dun, dun, dun. Has anybody reading anything other than Sunburst? To be honest, I'm kind of I'm kind of cash, trying to cash in on that this week. <laughs> What's number four? No. Number four is Sunburst never happened. It's two truths and two lies. <laughs> there you go. I was thinking of just throwing out my points and doing something ridiculous for a lie with Sunburst, but I just chose not to. It was too painful. And how are you feeling about these? You know, here's what I'm gonna say. Uh, these are good ones, Kelsey. Uh, I'm going to go with the first one, the HPE disclosure. I don't remember reading about that. And it's so believable and routine and straightforward that 
I'm just going to say that's a lie. (laughs) (laughs) Do you agree with him, Matt? So actually I do. And here's why, because, you know, if you look at those, I mean, which, which singular entity has the largest footprint and entities that have a large footprint, you would think, you know, you would think that would be more newsworthy. And obviously maybe that might fight its way through the sunburst, uh, you know, solar winds thing. So I'm going to go with what Tim had to say. All right. Should we do a drum roll? Oh, one moment, Ooh. please. Ooh, please hold. Molrat Cyber Espionage Group new and improved malware abuses TikTok services was the lie. The HPE thing happened. Oh, oh my gosh. Bah, bah. Yeah. Wow. Unfortunate. Wow. I just think it. Yeah, I think everything got overrun news wise by what's happening with Sunburst. But yes, unfortunately, that was true. Well done, Kelsey. Good job. Well, yeah, really good job. Worthy opponent. It's, it's a very unfortunate reason to get points. Is things are so bad that people don't believe that that didn't hit the news. <laughs> yeah, that's. I don't know, feel good totally about it. <laughs> sign of the times. The hoodie rating has totally blew everything else out of the water. It's war. true. Yeah, like, I think indeed. the hoodie rating is logarithmic now. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Shoot, well, Matt, I want to thank you for your first ever participation on the podcast. We very much look forward to Heck having yeah. on you again. I had fun. It was, it was awesome, Matt. Thank you so much. You guys are awesome, and I uh, really enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, everyone. Again, we'll be back in 2021 next year um, with more puns, more frustrated Chad, um, and, and just lots of fun. So, again, please take good care. Have a healthy holiday. Be kind to yourselves, as Tim said, and we'll see you next time on Breaking Badness. That's about all we have for this week. You can find us on Twitter at Domain Tools. All of the articles and IOCs mentioned today will be included in our blog post, which can be found at DomainTools.com slash resources slash podcasts. Catch us every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific time when we publish our podcast and blog. That's all we have for this week. We'll see you next week on another episode of Breaking Badness. Until then, remember, don't drink and click.